And welcome to the Cubits podcast. My name's Tom Broughton. I'm the founder of Cubits. And in this series, I'm speaking to people I like to call emotional utilitarians. People who live lives split between the pragmatic and the romantic. My guest today is Lally Macbeth, and she leans more into the second camp. She's an artist, writer, and curator based in Cornwall. And having studied fashion history at Central St. Martin, she's moved into disciplines as disparate as artist, archivist, historian, writer, event organiser and even Morris Dancer. She runs Folk Archive and its more niche tributaries and founded Stone Club with Matthew Shaw, a collective that seeks to celebrate and congregate at ancient stones. I'll be asking Lally about the objects she fills her life with and finding out about three of her most cherished possessions. Lally, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. In this podcast, we are exploring this idea of, we like to call it an emotional utilitarian. So this idea of objects and things that are very functional and pragmatic, but laced with a sense of romanticism. Do you think that describes you? Absolutely. I mean, I think actually Stone Club and the Folk Archive have both really come out of that sort of both utilitarian need to archive and be very linear and sort of have sources but also a huge injection of yeah just wanting to ramble in the landscape and you know sort of misty climes and the beauty of it I mean my house is uh it's yeah pays pleasure to that really in that it's it's definitely um sort of functional but incredibly full (laughs) with with things that possibly other people wouldn't think were functional (laughs) And you very kindly brought along three objects today that we're going to talk about uh, later, which hopefully encapsulate that idea of the emotional utilitarian. But maybe we could start by, could you just tell us about Stone Club? Yeah, absolutely. So we started it in 2021 and it really came out of a sort of mutual love um, of Matthew and I's kind of explorations. And we'd been spending a bit of time exploring West Penwith and sort of bumping into various people um, for instance, Dental Monk, who is member number two, I think, and having these kind of conversations about wouldn't it be fun to have a space in which we could kind of chat more about it and explore it more artistically. So it initially was, I suppose, a slight joke in that we were like, oh, it'll be like Dennis Menace fan club and we'll have badges and membership cards. Um, and I have a badge maker from when I was about 16 that my mum had bought me for a birthday and I started making badges. And then it sort of spiraled and people were just like really into it and really wanted to join. So we put memberships out to everybody and we now have 2,500 members and we run a series of events across London and Cornwall and sort of wider UK. And it's really fun. It's really fun. It's a really wonderful mixture of kind of geologists, archaeologists, artists, writers. And I think that's partly why I love it. It's a melting pot of kind of creativity yeah. and if people are interested in it how can they um so they on? can join or they can just sort of look on as many also do um we have an instagram page which is the.stone.club but we also have a website which is stoneclub.rocks which i'm very sure 
And yeah, you can find out about all of our events on there, but also uh, we have a Your Stones page, which is where kind of members send us in sites that they've been to and sort of, yeah, talk about their experiences of the landscape. Cool. And tell us about Folk Archive too. Yeah. So the Folk Archive actually started a little bit before Stone Club. And that was really, it sort of came out of my artistic practice more than anything in that I was finding lots of images and not using them and thinking, oh, I need to do something with these. I need to kind of collect them together somewhere. And so I, on a, yeah, very much a whim on a rainy sort of afternoon in January, was like, oh, I'll start on Instagram. And it was just before lockdown. And I think, yeah, people just really got into it and sort of started following and from that, I've, yeah, I've done all sorts of things. I had an exhibition a couple of years ago. I've done a series of talks. Uh, I put together a podcast at one point, which was more sort of soundscape. But yeah, it's, it's been, it's had lots of kind of really fun exploratory things come from it. And it's, I suppose, yeah, for people who don't know it, it's a sort of collection of folk images, like costumes, objects. I have a real concentration on sort of trying to find things that haven't been posted elsewhere because... Mm -hmm there is a bit of profanation of sort of um, the same things over and over again. So I'm always like seeking for the things that haven't been discovered in archives and have got a bit buried. Let's dig into objects a little bit more. Mm. So I guess through the folk archive, what are the kind of objects that you've come across that have stood out for whatever reason? Well, I'm really passionate about church kneelers, <laughs> which a lot of people are like, why church kneelers? And I think for me, they're just really fascinating because they really represent a sort of they're often like a community effort. So it's usually a group of women, sometimes men, but generally women who've come together to make them for a project generally funded by the church, but sometimes not. And they, they collect together so many interesting themes because they quite often have sort of folk customs recorded. There's a really brilliant one in a church in Cornwall near Lamorna, which has the Merry Maiden standing stone, but in the middle, uh, a crucifix mm -hmm. with beams of light coming from it. And I just love this kind of merger. You wouldn't ever get that in any other object in a church. So it's, I think, a really interesting kind of folk history that appears. And you, you get such a sense of a community or a place through looking at them. And could you just explain for anyone who doesn't know what a church kneeler is? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, pretty much everyone's seen one at some point. You know, if you've ever sat through a service and felt a bit bored at Christmas or <laughs> if you went to a church school, which I did, uh, you've probably looked at the back of one on the back of your chair. And they're essentially just uh, prayer kneelers. So yeah, they're used for prayer. You kneel on them and they're generally uh, made from tapestry and then padded. Yeah. So again, very functional purpose, but with a- Absolutely functional, plan. but with a really interesting history. And you know, there are sort of kit ones you can get. I'm not so interested in those. I'm really interested in the ones where they've kind of gone to town and just made them up because <laughs> they're often really bonkers and really amazing. Yeah, so they're probably my favorite object. Do objects have power? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, um, I'm really inspired by the work of an artist called Eiffel Cahoon, who was living in Cornwall and she, she was somewhat of an animist, but she really, yeah, she really believed that objects, but also place had power and that but yeah, essentially the whole of Cornwall was kind of a living, breathing thing. So I absolutely um, subscribe to this idea. And I, I have a cabinet at home, which I've always called my special things cabinet, but it is essentially objects which I feel in some way are kind of imbued with some sort of power. And they're quite, some of them are not things that 
anyone else would recognize as being powerful or beautiful or even interesting. You know, they're sort of pebbles I've collected or um, odd things that people have given me over the years, but they all have the same equality within this cupboard. And do you see, is that power, you know, always positive or does, do you, do you have objects that have a kind of imbue a negative? Yeah, I think, I think it can be positive or negative. I suppose one, it depends how you acquired it and two, what history it had before you. Um, so yeah, I definitely, I definitely believe that there are objects that can uh, do bad as well as good. I don't know if I've got any in my own possession. I probably do if I really thought about it. I, my, my great aunt was a doll collector and she had sort of thousands of quite spooky to other people dolls, but I thought they were amazing. But when I show people photographs, they're always like, So I think that's the other thing is like sometimes objects can have that kind of sense of creepiness or eeriness to one person, but they can be sort of beautiful or interesting to another person. So I'm interested in those juxtapositions as well. Absolutely. What draws you to stones specifically? Stones. Well, I grew up in Ireland and then Cornwall and generally was in the countryside as a child. And I think sort of surrounded by granite in particular in Cornwall. And so I, I think it sort of, it, um, it sort of gets into your soul. Like I just, I don't think I, I can't even really put into words why I mm -hmm. love them, but it's just, it feels for me very much home to look at them and as I became older and sort of explored those sites more and uh, spent more time with stone, it just became more beautiful to me and more interesting. And um, yeah, I think it's hard once you've got the bug to get rid of it. And, and do you think it, how much of it is the kind of the aesthetic and the material versus, I guess, the, the story behind it and the historical? I think it's both for me because I am obviously really interested in the folklore of sites and the kind of stories that have been passed down through generations, particularly in Cornwall, there are some amazing ones. But I think also, obviously, aesthetically, they're very beautiful. There's nothing more gorgeous to me than spending a day on the misty moorlands of Cornwall, you know, either in Penwith or Bodmin Moor, and just getting slightly lost, a bit pisky-led, and getting back to the car and just feeling really full and joyous. It's, yeah, there's nothing like it. And what would you say it is about, I guess, folk and folklore that... that yeah, attracts you, interests you? I think for me, I mean, I grew up in a family of historians and writers. And so I was always really interested, I suppose, in, in storytelling. So I absolutely love that aspect of it. You know, I love folk stories. But I also, as a, a sort of ex-fashion historian, um, love objects and love textiles. And so I, I just... I think for me, it's a kind of merger of the two things. Like it's definitely more about objects, but it's about the stories that you can tell through the objects that mm. absolutely fascinates me. And those things that have got lost or sort of left behind in archives and no one's really ever cared about them because, you know, this is quite often the problem with folk objects is they don't have perhaps the intrinsic beauty of some objects in collections. You know, they're not particularly well made they're not particularly well cared for. Often they've entered an archive in just sort of slightly disintegrated fashion. But I, that's more interesting. It's more human to mm -hmm. me because it's had the touch of a human and there's all of that kind of yeah, power imbued in them. And there's always a romance for kind of backing the underdog as well, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah, no. Yeah, I, and I think also just like the kind of working history of people. And, you know, that for me is the, 
the true history of, of a place is, is, you know, what were working people using and doing and, and what were the things that they were celebrating and, you know, what were the points in the year that were important to them. Yeah. So, yeah, it's exploring all of that, I think. And I think, I mean, there was an amazing object I saw a little while ago, actually in an exhibition that Simon Costin put on called Making Mischief. And it was this incredible mumming costume and so mumming is a custom that typically happens around christmas it's a sort of folk play but it was made of paper and it must have been 19th century and i just found it incredible that this had lasted i mean it was completely disintegrating and faded but for me it was just really it was like a total fangirl moment to see it because i was like wow i've never seen one of these in <laughs> in real life i've only ever seen them in photographs so the fact that that had been preserved um, against all the odds because, you know, essentially they are made for the day yeah. and then get thrown away. I think there's a beauty in that. And what would you say makes, an, uh, I guess, an object a folk object? Mm, that's a really interesting question and something I've actually been considering a lot recently. I think for me, partly it's whether it's been touched by the human hand, mm -hmm. um, whether it's been made by a particular sort of person for a particular either custom or with a particular place in mind, because that's a very important thing, I think, in looking at folk histories. You know, they are often very localised. Um, and I think it's hard exactly to say, because there are lots of things that I probably would consider folk that a lot of people don't consider folk. So I'm really interested in model villages, for instance, uh, because they are often made by quite eccentric individuals um, and they're often handmade you know they're like hands thatched they often build them with little bricks which I think is incredible and you know, there's something about the time and the perhaps slightly odd inclination that for me makes things slightly folk it's like why would you do you know why would you spend that much time on something and there's a, a beauty and I think also a sort of slight nostalgia for people in that in a world in which now we don't spend a lot of time mm -hmm. over something. So I think partly also the interest or re-interest in folk is to do with that because it's, it's kind of fascinating and amazing to see that people have spent hours of their life concentrating on these very particularly <laughs> niche things. Absolutely. Um, something I do want to ask you about is um, Morris dancing. Mm, yes. So could you... Tell us about yeah. your, your interest in Morris dancing, I suppose, first of all. Well, so it actually, so I am a Morris dancer and it sort of came about because I, um, a few years ago, a friend of mine was putting on a conference um, at Worcester University called Enchanted Environments. And it was looking at how you can re-enchant landscape and what does enchantment mean and how, you know, how can you engage with that? And I got really interested in the idea of Morris dancing. I'd never tried it at this point. There wasn't an awful lot of it in Cornwall, despite Cornwall being actually one of the um, earliest places that Morris dancing happened. It sort of died out there. And so I thought, well, I could try alone Morris dancing. And so I joined a Morris dancing troupe that I found in um, a town near me with the idea that I would then go and make this piece of work and make mm. these costumes but I actually just got really into it. <laughs> and so I couldn't quite bring myself to leave at the end of the project. You know, I, I, I did make the costume. I went to the conference and I performed this piece, but 
I also then had just acquired a, a genuine love of Morris dancing. And so now I dance with a group called The Wads, who are based in Falmouth. And it was set up by a really amazing woman called Kate Merry, who is Alex Merry from Boss Morris's sister. And she's, yeah, she's just great. She's like super bonkers and amazing and just really up for kind of being traditional, but taking it forward and progressing it, which is something I'm really interested in. You know, I, I really feel that folk customs and folk dance have to progress and evolve in order to to move forward. So yeah, it's been such fun. I absolutely love it. And I'm quite often the fool for them, which is a character that's quite written out of, I suppose, of modern Morris, but I felt really important to bring back. So I've got a bunch of quite odd costumes that I wear with funny hats and I go around being a bit silly. I tell you, what are some of the objects that are involved in? Well, so the fool actually is really interesting. Quite often they have a bladder on a stick, which obviously we've decided not to do because it's not very, very wise. <laughs> not very PC now. Um, but I've got a, a pasty, a Cornish pasty on the stick that I sort of um, dangle around. And then they, yeah, they quite often, actually the fool often has the bucket for collecting the money um, because obviously, you know, got to buy pints mm -hmm. for the Morris side. Um but yeah, in terms of the Morris dancers, they have the bells, obviously a very important part of it. And often they're on bell pads. The WAD actually have tied ones, which is just, it's slightly easier for dancing. Um, and then, yeah, they've got a whole variety of costumes and then beasts as well, very important part of Morris. So we've got an owl and a, a, a bunny rabbit called Barbara. <laughs> Do you Morris dance on your own? Was it a wholly group activity? Well, you can Morris dance on your own. I have, I have done it. And a friend of mine actually is just conducting a project about, she's calling it Hedge Morris, and it's all about lone Morris dancing. And that, there are, yeah, there are a lot of people who do it. And there are several dances or traditional dances that you can do alone and they're sort of show pieces. So they'd yeah. be sort of done at the end, you know, it's like, oh, isn't that person got good footwork? Um, but mostly I now dance with people because it's sort of, I think there's a, um, a sense of like the collective, which is really important to Morris yeah. for me in that you kind of get this magic when, when everyone's like doing it together and you're clacking your sticks. It is really, it's, yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah. I guess folk more generally, it's difficult for it to exist in kind of isolation. Absolutely. Yeah, no, completely. And I think there was a lot of conversation around this, obviously during the pandemic of how, how do folk customs continue? And, you know, there are a lot of videos of people doing Lone Morris dancing <laughs> online, but it, oh, I don't know, it just isn't as fun. We did a few Morris practices over Zoom. Just doesn't really work very well. <laughs> so it's definitely, I'm definitely pro it happening in person. And I think a lot of what I do is trying to get people to engage with, you know, doing things together and, and community and collaboration, as opposed to, to going off and doing it on your own. It's just much more fun. Are there any objects you, you specifically collect? Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, I collect so many things. So I collect horse brasses, um, which, yeah, I, I just think they're a really interesting object. You often see them in charity shops or sort of junk shops in kind of forgotten boxes. And I initially started collecting them just because I found them kind of beautiful, but they're actually, yeah, they're just so many interesting kind of folk things associated with them as well in terms of they're a bit, contested like <laughs> no one's quite sure what their use was so some people say that they were just purely decorative on the horse 
And then other people maintain that they were in some way like warding off the evil eye or mm-hmm. protecting the horse, which I really like. I kind of think that is a nicer, <laughs> a nicer answer. And then in terms of other things I collect, I mean, I've got a huge library. I would say I definitely collect books. They're probably my, my main source of, uh, yeah, collecting, but um, also vinyl and I collect costumes as well. So I've got a big costume archive of kind of theatre costumes, but also kind of folk costumes and just odd things that I pick up in charity shops and go, oh, that's quite interesting. Yeah, and that definitely comes out of interest in textiles, but also folk histories because quite a lot of the things in there are things that are unlabeled or uh, have been slightly forgotten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and people are just like, oh, you know, I was going to throw that in the bin. I went to no, I'll take it. <laughs> And when you're sort of out with Stone Club stomping mm. around the UK, are there any objects that you always have to have on your person? Well, there are. I mean, so the third rule, because we have three rules for Stone Club, and the third rule is pack a Mac and pack a snack, which was very much informed by the fact that I never have a Mac and I never have a snack. And it's often raining and I'm often really hungry. <laughs> but yeah, so I would definitely say a Mac and a snack are very important. Also, obviously, a water bottle. Um, and usually I like to take a pen and some paper because I like to write or draw or sort of record the experience in some way. And then sometimes I'll take something which is a little bit questionable, like a hagstone or some sort of magical object just to guide me along the way, which also sort of weighs me down quite a lot. I think, oh, I just don't know this. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose a map is sometimes helpful too. So it does quite a lot actually associated with rambling. It's not, yeah, it's not a light business. <laughs> well, not for me. And we'll go on to your object shortly. Just one final question. Uh, would you rather have a beautiful painting or a beautiful chair? Well, I think probably a beautiful painting because, well, I do, I mean, I have several beautiful paintings at home and I get such enjoyment from waking up every day and looking at them because they're in my bedroom and... It's, yeah, it just always feels magical to kind of wake up and think, yeah, that's, that's gorgeous. And with chairs, I'm kind of, I'm actually quite a floor sitter. <laughs> so I could definitely do without the chair. Doesn't form the functional need that you need. No, I, no, I think I'm definitely probably am beauty over function <laughs> at my heart. Now, if that's okay, let's turn to your... Yes. Your three objects yeah. that you've kindly brought today. Could you take yes. your first and tell us about it? So my first is a hagstone, which is a holdstone. And I was given this by someone on our first ever Stone Club event. And it was quite, it was a sort of funny coincidence. So Matthew, who I run Stone Club with, and I did this performance as the kind of, I suppose, the opening event of the night. And we gave out a hagstone to each person. And then this really lovely girl who'd been following us for a while, but I'd never met, produced a hagstone from her back. I was like, I've bought you one too. So it's sort of become like a very lucky talisman, even though it's quite, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just a pebble, but I carry it with me everywhere. And um, just so everyone's clear, hagstone is, has a It has a little hole, hole yeah. And there is a piece of folklore that if you look through the hole, um, at someone, they're meant to become your sort of betrothed or your beloved. So you have to be careful, you know, what, <laughs> who you use it on. But, you know, you get them, you get them all across the Jurassic Coast. And 
I think I found them particularly amazing because you don't get them in Cornwall at all. So okay. I was very excited to to finally have one because I I, I haven't ever had one. So. And what is it that you love specifically about, about this? I think it's partly that it was it was a gift and it was a really it was very heartfelt. Even though it's you know it was completely free, she just picked it up on the beach. There's something I don't know. There was just something very lovely that she sort of thought to bring a stony gift to Stone Club. And I you know I as I said I'm a big believer in the power of objects. So I think it feels like it's a very powerful thing feels talismanic in its quality. And have you used it on anyone yet? Uh, yes, I have, but I shouldn't say who. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it worked. <laughs> Barbara, they're very... Because Barbara Hackworth used to refer to them a lot when she was doing a lot. She did, her, absolutely. So they're, I think, yeah, you, you, you get them um, throughout, throughout artistic history. People have been very inspired by them. Barbara Hepworth also... Um, Eileen Agar, lots of the surrealists were really kind of fascinated yeah. in them. And actually in the Witchcraft Museum, they've got they've got a whole collection of them. And they, yeah, and a lot of people wear them as well. So we did do a series of kind of ones that you could wear for Stone Club a little while ago. And what's the difference between a Hagstone and an Adderstone? Or are they the same, the same thing? Yeah, they are the same thing. They have lots of folk names. Yes, yeah, so Adderstone, there are various others that I don't know. But um, I think, again, it's like a sort of local... A local thing is like they, they have a different name wherever you go. Witchstone, I think they've also sometimes referred to. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks, Lally. Can you show us your second object? Yes. So I think I'll go for this one next. So my second object is a scrying mirror. And I should probably explain what scrying is. Um, so scrying, as far as I've done it, is where you look into a very dark surface and then you interpret the images that, that come forth and it's a sort of, it's a meditative action in that you kind of go, you're, you're supposed to go into a sort of trance-like state. And I made this one um, about six years ago. I spent some time in the Morna Valley in Cornwall with a group of other artists and we were sort of responding to the landscape and trying automatic surrealist techniques. And one of them was scrying. And so we each pit fired a scrying mirror in Lamorna Valley, and this was mine. And it lives on my mantelpiece now. So I don't, I don't actually use it very often anymore, but I just, yeah, it's kind of functional and beautiful for me because it really reminds me of a very magically infused and important time in my life. And so you don't often scry? Right? No, well, partly because I think I, it, you have, I always feel you have to be in the right frame of mind to do it. And you've got to really be able to clear your mind. And my mind is quite full at the moment. <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, I definitely will again. I just, I think for me, it, it's always like, it has to kind of come with a period of quiet and calm and like, almost like a retreat-like status from the world. And, and what, what makes a good scrying mirror? Well, actually, so this isn't a terribly good one. I should also say that because we... Um, when we were making them, we also took sort of vegetation from the landscape and, and imprinted onto it. So it's kind of got images in it. And actually the, the ones you can buy are just really black pools. Um, so a, uh, obsidian is often used, mm -hmm. which is obviously just, you know, it's like the blackest of the black and it's kind of perfect. So this, yeah, it's not fantastic, but I, <laughs> I still quite like it because I think for me, 
um, having the kind of impressions of the, you know, I kind of remember why. I think I impressed a fern into it and then blackberries because it was in the autumn. So I quite like having those traces. And it's a handy size as well, so you could take it with you and scry Absolutely. out of the I know, maybe I should add that to my list of <laughs> yeah. things I take out rambling, a scrying mirror. I think, yeah, sort of slip it into the pocket. It could be an essential for every walker. <laughs> and actually, when we were scrying, we, I did go into a fugu. There's a, a series of these structures in Cornwall called fugus, which are kind of underground, subterranean, almost cave-like structures. And they're not, well, no one really knows what they were for. A lot of people say they have a ritual use. Some people maintain that they were grain stores. But we did, we did a series of uh, scrying sort of activities uh, down in the Fugu, which was very interesting. Got a lot of really good drawings out of that. <laughs> so, yeah, I need to return to the Fugu with my scrying mirror at some point. And does it ha is, is the shape important or can it be? Well, actually, no. They actually, most of them tend to be sort of oval. But I suppose something that you can hold in yeah. your hand is, you know, it's the ideal thing because you want to be able to kind of hold it and look at it. But you can get scrying mirrors as well where you just stare into them and they're pretty amazing. Quite like one of those. <laughs> one day. Thank you, Lally. And could you show us your third yes. and final object? So my third and final object is a horse brass because I collect them. And this one usually lives actually in... Um, I have a little portative folk archive that I take around sometimes and when I do talks and things. And it's a tiny little cabinet and this lives on top of there. And it's <laughs> it says Camelot underneath it. And then it's got this sort of knight on a on a slightly faded horse. Um, but I just I, what I love about it is that so quite often they're quite practical. They're either symbols or they're you can get like sort of cats or places or like the Land's End ones. But I liked that this was a mythical place. Like I went to Camelot and I got a horse bar. <laughs> yeah, I've got a really good one, which is a Cornish Pisky, which I also like. It was a bit of a challenge to decide which one was my favourite, but this one out. And how, what, how do you have them on like display in your home? Yeah, so I've got them hung up mostly. I mean, yeah, it's quite, quite a lot of them. Not all of them are hung. I do also have a drawer full. But uh, yeah, mostly they're hung up kind of in, twined with various odd pictures or sort of uh, photographs that I've taken. So yeah, it's quite a feast on my walls. <laughs> but you, I mean, you briefly mentioned it earlier, but what is it that draws you to a, to a horse brass? I think, I think it is that actually, that they were sort of essentially a functional thing to sort of decorate the horse, but in a quite practical way. But also, again, like, with the kneelers, they always have these really interesting themes in them. Um, and they are particularly popular in Cornwall. Like it, it was very much sort of 70s, 80s kind of aesthetic, like you'd get them in all the pubs. Yeah. And there's an amazing pub in uh, Penzance called the Bembo, which is just completely covered in them. And so I think, yeah, they're quite sort of nostalgic to me in a way. Like they really just remind me of my childhood. Yeah, so I think. Sort of beauty and function in them. And the pe like. people still making them now? Can you get contemporary? Yeah, you can. I'm re I really want to make one. <laughs> and actually, I got a really good one a little while ago in Kent. There was an amazing exhibition about hooded uh, hooden horses, um, which is a practice that only sort of really happens in Kent. 
And there are these amazing horses with jewels that clap. But I got a fantastic horse brass with a hooded horse on it. So that's like sort of pride in my collection now. I'm a bit scared to like move it anywhere because if I ever lose, that would be so sad. Um, but yeah, so they are still being made. But I, I think I do prefer the older ones because they're a little bit more sort of naive, the drawing mm -hmm. on them. Like, it's just a bit more appealing to me. And are they like a quintessentially sort of British English thing? Or? Yeah, although there are, I mean, there are lots of uh, practices of obviously decorating horses. Yeah. But it tends, yeah, it does tend to be British as far as I know. I've not seen them elsewhere, but I could be corrected on that. I'm always at pains not to be an expert on anything because <laughs> as soon as you are, then you get uh, get someone going. Well, actually, I saw this, and but I, I've never seen them elsewhere. I've um, I've only seen them here, and you get sort of bells as well on the horse's head, which are amazing. I've got a few of those. So yeah. Well, as a very novice horse brass admirer, it looks very nice indeed. Yeah, thanks. Lovely.